They just basic. What was I thinking? I done gave you all I had to move forward and get him back in my defense. Before what dive to the deep end, I'm leaving. Good morning, everybody. Um, 
Anne and I wanted to update you on the memorial wall, which is outside on the patio. It's behind Sanctuary C. I mean B, sorry. In 2009, UCC and members of the Methodist congregation created the space for people to place a nameplate in memory of a loved family member or friend who had died. Recently, the space on the wall has been enlarged to accommodate more plates. Additional information about ordering a memorial plate this year is available in the order of service and in the link. This is what the um, order blank looks like. If you order one now, um, between now and August 15th, it will be added in the fall. Flyers with order blanks will be available after the service and at the welcome table and in future issues of the link in the order and service. And there's a brochure rack in the office downstairs where I'll leave some if you want to pick one up. Okay, thank you. Good morning, UUCC. My name is Paige Getty. I use the pronouns she, her, and hers, and it is my pleasure to be here with you this morning and my honor and privilege to serve as a minister of this congregation. Those of you here in the sanctuary, remember if you need a hearing assist device, those are available from the tech booth in the back. Everyone can find the order of service online, either using the link in the chat or by using the QR code that's going to appear on the screen briefly. If you are a guest, please be sure to complete that visitor form that's available online as well or in the lobby here in the building. 
Later in the service, we will honor personal joys and sorrows. So if you have anything you would like to have shared with the congregation today, please send that via email to joysandsorrows at uucolumbia.net or write it in the book that's in the back of the sanctuary. Many thanks to everyone who's contributing to this morning's service, especially the hospitality team and the tech team who are making things run smoothly here in the building and online. And a special thanks to the climate team and Robin Slaw and Valerie Shu for their contributions, not only that you're going to see this morning in the service, but also to how they helped in our collective thinking about the topics we're going to address today. And please note that Valerie has chosen keyboard selections today that were all composed by black women, which is relevant to today's topic. In their ongoing effort to both educate and act in the world, each month UUCC's climate team focuses on a particular area of interest that may not immediately seem to relate to the climate. One month, we, their focus was on immigration. Another month, women and girls. This month, the focus is racism, and so on. In that month of focus, the team explores how climate change affects and is affected by the other issue that they're focused on. How drought drives immigrants away from their homelands, on the one hand, and how an influx of immigrants in a new place affects the environment there, just as a single example. In this month's focus on racism and climate change, they're considering how the effects of climate change disproportionately impact and harm black, indigenous, and other persons of color because of centuries of systemic racism, because of politics, because of capitalism, because of legalized segregation and isolation, and so on. As they wrote to me when we were communicating about the service, lead in Flint's water, officials choosing sites for landfills and power plants next to black neighborhoods, minority communities lacking access to groceries with healthy foods, oil and gas pipelines threatening Native Americans communities, Native American communities' water supplies. These are just some examples of how the environment intersects with racial justice. I'm so grateful for Kirsten Nelson and Mary Rogers and Robin Hesse and Pat Heidel for the discussions that we shared that inspired today's service. A service in which we're considering what intersectionality is and why it matters, why it matters to us who say we are faithfully committed to being justice makers in the world. In a speech delivered 40 years ago, Audre Lorde reminded her audience that there is no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. So in the spirit of that particular truth, I invite you to breathe Open your mind and your heart and your body and let us worship.
Will you now rise in body or in spirit? And we are going to sing together three verses of Our World is One World. Helena, I know you're really, you may be seated. I know you're really busy over there, but would you come light the chalice? Thank you. So the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, not only its initial impacts, but also the mishandling of it is a vivid example of the intersections of injustice as not being only an environmental issue, but one that disproportionately harms residents who are black. And so we're gonna dedicate this flaming chalice with words from the Young Activists Dictionary of Social Justice, and Pat Heidel from the climate team is here to do that. Well, I have a true story about a young girl, Little Miss Flint. I think we ought to call her Big Miss Flint, but anyway. In April 2015, the city of Flint, Michigan, switched its water supply from the Detroit water system to the nearby Flint River in an effort to save money. Within a few months, people in the area started getting sick. They had rashes, some people were losing their hair, and others just noticed that the water looked and smelled and tasted funny. However, the community leaders insisted the water was safe. After more than a year of complaints, a group of doctors investigated and ran blood tests on the children of Flint they found that the lead levels in the blood were high off the chart. Lead is dangerous because it can cause serious developmental problems, but the government still refused to take action. It was then that eight-year-old Marie Copney, also known as Little Miss Flint, took matters into her own hands. She wrote a letter to President Barack Obama asking him to visit Flint and see the water crisis firsthand. After this visit, he approved $100 million in relief for the city. Marie continues to use her platform to fight for clean water in Flint and to fundraise and champion causes like environmental racism. As Paige said, this story illustrates the intersection of the environment and racial justice, or injustice, and how an eight-year-old girl could make a big difference. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. I'm gonna invite you to rise again in body or in spirit. 
as we speak together our congregational covenant and then wish good morning to one another. These words that you'll see on your screen are the promises that we continue to make to and with one another. Strengthened by our common humanity and inspired by our seven principles, we promise to be a safe and welcoming community, to nurture each other's hearts and spirits, to delight in the beauty of our diversity, to struggle together on our spiritual journeys, and to challenge each other to live our values. Thus, we pledge time and vigor to the continuing celebration of spirit, of the world, and of humankind. Thank you. And now gently and kindly and with consent before you touch anybody, say hello. Good morning, everybody at home on Zoom. We're glad to have you here. morning. There it is. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. My name is Robin Slaw. I am your director of religious education. I use the pronouns she and her. And I would like to invite any children or any people young of heart to come on down to the front this morning. We have a puzzle to solve. So I hope you will have fun with it. So my family really loves puzzles. We like magic puzzles, we like word puzzles, we play online puzzles, we play game puzzles. How many of you like puzzles? Oh, and jigsaw puzzles, of course, we do do jigsaw puzzles. So today we're gonna to be talking about a puzzle that impacts all of us, all human beings. So one of the tricks that I use to solve puzzles is to find one piece that I understand. Like when I'm doing that Wordle puzzle online, if I can find one letter, then I almost always can solve the puzzle. But if I can't find even one letter, if one piece that I can figure out, it's really hard to solve a puzzle, isn't it? So, People are a little bit like puzzles, and uh, they have a lot of pieces, and some of those bits are maybe easy to understand, and maybe others of those bits are not so easy to understand. So, so 
So yes, you're right. Some people are very good at understanding other people in puzzles, and some people aren't. You are right. I, I tend to be maybe a little bit on the harder to understand, especially people. It could be a little confusing. So let's see if we can figure out these bits, because I have puzzle pieces here. Would you like to help me? Yes. Yeah? OK, Helena. Will you start with this one? Can you read what that says? I'll help you. It says ability. Ability. So Helena helped me a little bit before. So she sort of knows where it goes. But that's a bit of a human puzzle. Ability. OK, just a second, and I, you can be next. Absolutely. So ability, some people have ability, and some people have more ability, and some people have less ability. Let, what, why don't we try it right up there? There you go. Thank you. It doesn't look like it wants to stick. Oh, I think it'll stick. You don't think it wants to? Well, we'll see. If it falls down, we'll pick it up again. Thank you, Helena. Yep, perfect. Thank you. So people that have a lot of ability also have something called privilege. So if you can see, you know what that is? Good. So if you can see, you can do more things than somebody who cannot see, right? So your ability makes a difference in how much privilege you have. Let's try another piece. I'm moving it so the camera can... Oh, thank you. All right, here you go. See if you can figure out where that might fit on our puzzle. I think it might fit there. You think it might go there? Okay, we'll just put it there. Can you read what that word says? Race. Race. Well, so... Sure it doesn't mean race like... So kind of like religion, that type of race, not how fast you can run. Yes, you're correct. You're, you can also get that privilege from things like having white skin and being male. So you can get privilege from having white skin and from being male. I think you understand this idea of intersectionality pretty well. I have to tell you, Teddy. All right. You have a high connection with it. I'm really glad to hear that. We, I hope everybody here has a high connection with intersectionality. Okay, so hang on, Teddy. We're gonna, we're gonna keep going with our puzzle. So we have their race. That's the color of our skin, right? And so the color of our skin makes a difference in how much privilege we have. We all know that. That's a pretty basic thing. Who's next? Well, let's give other people a chance. Do you wanna try it? Thanks, Gigi. See where you can fit it with those other two pieces. It says gender. It does say gender. So, so um, Teddy already mentioned that. Males have more privilege than females or non-binary or transgender people, right? It's just a thing in our country especially. You think it might go right next to it? Maybe. 
well, we'll put more pieces on it and we'll see if we can figure it out. Who else wants to do a piece? Maggie, what does that one say? Religion. Religion. In this country, especially, what religion you practice gives you more or less privilege. So for example, if you're Christian, at least right now, you have a lot of privilege, especially in our government, right? If you're Muslim, not so much. I don't know. We're, we're really puzzled by this puzzle. You think it maybe needs to go upside down? We'll see. How about who's next? Want to try one, Stephen? Can you read that word? Class. class. So not what grade you're in in school. I don't mean that kind of class. That one means how much money your family has and all the way back. So people with a lot of money have more privilege than people without. All right, I have two more pieces. Come on up. How about both of you come up, one of you each piece, tell me what that is. Sexual orientation. Okay, and what's that? It, oh, it does have something to do oh, with sex. I'm pretty sure there are two types of sex, like sex assigned at birth and another type of sex. So that's gender, and that's very good. You're understanding that. Sexual orientation means who we like. Here. Yeah, it fits right there. Good. I don't know what it says because it's not very good to write on, like, fabric. Yeah, it's not good to write on felt. It, didn't, it blurred a little bit. This one says citizenship. Mm-hmm. So that means what country you belong to, citizenship. All right, I think we have to rearrange this all a little bit because we have some pieces hanging out in the middle there that don't quite fit. What do you think? I think that this goes here, see? Oh, it could fit there. But I think it might actually fit here better. It actually, could fit there. How about right here? Let's try. You definitely know what this is. I think it fits there. All right, yep, that's where it fits. All right, good job. Next. So this kind of looks like shoulders. It does look like shoulders. Where do you think the end piece is? Yeah, there you go. That, now the puzzle. Human puzzle. We are making a human puzzle. Look at that. There you go. You got it. All right. So the human puzzle. Well, that's okay. We're not going to worry about whether it's perfectly neat, but you guys got it. Thank you for helping me put this puzzle together. So this is what intersectionality is all about. When we know all of the parts of people and where their privilege is and where they don't have any privilege or if they have a disadvantage, then they have more challenges. And for us to be able to understand people and understand issues, we have to understand the whole person. We have to understand their ability, their race, their gender, where they came from, what religion they are, their income or class, and their sexual orientation. And all of those things together tell us how much privilege someone has, how many oppressions they feel, 
And when we understand all of that, then we know how to help. Then we know what issues to start working on that need to be made better so that we can have a better world. So I wonder, what kind of privileges do you have? And what kind of oppressions do you have? And I'd love to talk about that a little bit more with all of you, not just the people in the front. And I'd like to hear what are the issues you think you might be interested in helping with so that everybody has more privileges than oppressions. All right. So we're going to sing the children out now. Parents, you can pick them up downstairs because it's raining. We'll be in 150. Would you all help us sing out? And I don't know what song it is. Circle around for freedom. <laughs> Dr. Heber Brown III. I am the executive director of the Black Church Food Security Network. I think we're not hearing it. And I was going to tell you what you're getting ready to see. Which um, today is the second Sunday of the month, and it's our tradition to collect money that we then give away. And this Sunday, this month, we are giving the funds to the Black Church Food Security Network. And we have a video from Reverend Dr. Heber Brown III, who is the founder and director of that network. So you can hear about why your gifts today will be so important. So now let's play the video. Thank you. Reverend Dr. Heber Brown III, I am the executive director of the Black Church Food Security Network. And I would like to extend my gratitude to you, the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia, for your consideration of support toward our organization. The Black Church Food Security Network works to further black food and land sovereignty by co-creating black food ecosystems anchored by black churches in partnership with black farmers. We recognize that the corporate food system that all of us currently live under is one that puts profits at the center, profits over everything else. And we realize that that kind of system is not healthy for people and it is not healthy for the planet. So we organize and mobilize congregations to be the fuel to help bring about a new food system. In fact, not just a food system, but food ecosystems. That's right. Our organization is working to co-create black food ecosystems all over the country where churches grow food on their land, where they utilize their assets to host farmers markets, which center and celebrate black farmers and food business owners. And we connect with black farmers in order to create a black 
food supply chain, the kind of people-powered food supply chain that helps to lift up and support those who are most directly impacted by the vestiges of food apartheid. I want to thank you because your support is coming at a key moment in the life of our organization and this country. Our organization is experiencing rapid growth. In fact, we're growing so fast that I just stepped down as pastor of my church so that I could focus more fully on pastoring this national movement. We have churches all across the country, and we have farmers that we are blessed to be in relationship with. We know where our food comes from. And because of your support, we'll be able to help to start more gardens at churches across the country, get more people growing food. We'll be able to help support the creation of more farmers markets at churches that we call the soil to sanctuary market. And we'll be able to buy more produce from black farmers across the country and pipeline this nutrient-rich food into communities and cities across the nation as well. Your support goes a long way. With the rising cost of food, with inflation, the high cost of gas, with war and with climate change and so much more, this is the kind of all-in moment where all of our faith communities, all of our civic organizations should be working together in greater partnership. And you are doing just that through your support of our organization today. Thank you on behalf of our farmers, our families, our communities, and our organization for your support of the Black Church Food Security Network. Thank you, Dr. Brown, and thank you all for your generosity as we collect your free offerings for this very good work in the world. You'll see the instructions for how to give on your screen, or you can put lots of cash in that basket in the back. I'm Robin Hesse, and I'd like to read a poem called Gas by Sarah Browning. After the great snow of 2016, my car sits locked in icy drifts, a weak green fossil of oil age preserved in graying amber. I relearned the art of walking, of reading pocket paperbacks on the bus, which uses the same stuff, this gas, 
to bear us through the snow-narrowed streets of Washington, D.C., capital of Exxon, capital city of Shell, we are still two dozen here driving one tank. Once rains come and the weather gang shakes their collective heads as the mercury rises to 60 degrees, my car is free to roam again. The precincts of BP, the Republic of Sunoco. I'll drive my car to the climate change rally. I'll drive it to the poetry reading that protests war in Iraq, that denounces repression in Syria, that stands in solidarity with poets locked up in Saudi Arabia. My car gives me that much freedom and power plus music to soothe me, and a phone charger to keep me connected to my comrades in struggle. My car glides smoothly in and out of gear, builds my self-esteem as I parallel park perfectly each day in tight spots on the hill where I dwell. The weather scares me. The wars enrage me. The poets silenced by despots break my heart. But my car needs me. My car is nothing without me. My car and I are one. I pledge my allegiance long ago, an American century ago, to my beautiful, necessary, beloved car. Thank you, Robin, for that. I know you're not here this morning, but thank you anyway. So I asked Robin Hesse to share that poem because when I read it, it made me terribly uncomfortable. <laughs> my car and I are one, the poet says. I pledged my allegiance long ago. I pledged my allegiance the first time I chose to live in a place where my routine activities, getting to work, to school, to a grocery store, would require the use of a car or if not a car, then hours of waiting to use public transportation, hours of waiting that would feel to me like time wasted, not to mention that I don't really like being in close quarters with strangers. I like having my own car, my beautiful, necessary, beloved car. But I was well into my 30s, maybe my 40s, before I gave any critical thought to what it means for me to even have that choice. All the decisions and circumstances that laid the groundwork for me to live in the suburbs, to be a mortgage holder, to feel that I'm entitled to the comforts of solitude and self-determination and the convenience of a privately owned personal vehicle. It was my parents' status as homeowners and full-time professional workers, their financial resources that kept me fed and healthy as a child and allowed me to go to college, an educational system in this country that was designed to work well for someone with my neurological makeup. It's my marital status, my whiteness. All of that contributes to the choices available to me and to the privilege of being able to ignore that which doesn't affect me directly. I am a woman, so sexism and patriarchy have affected my life for sure. My body is more likely to be objectified than a man's is. I make less money than men in similar clergy positions. I'm expected to be the default parent since I'm married to a man. 
But my relative wealth and my whiteness and my cisgenderness and my heterosexual marriage and my more typical physical and neurological capacities, all of these are privileges that carry a lot of power and influence and that protect me from the worst impacts of sexism and patriarchy. And it's because of all of that and because I say that I'm invested in collective liberation for all, that I must better understand intersectionality. I must be able to see that our world is designed to marginalize women and to marginalize black people and to marginalize people with disabilities and to marginalize people who are queer. And our world is more disproportionately harmful to people who are women and black and queer and with disabilities, for example. So I must accept that any efforts to address one issue will fail if I refuse to acknowledge how that issue's impacts are exacerbated by other oppressions. There is no such thing as a single-issue struggle because we do not live single-issue lives, as Audre Lorde said. So in 1989, academic writer Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality. She coined it in a paper as a way to help explain the oppression of African-American women in particular. It was a somewhat academic term at the time, but the concept of intersectionality now, however many years later it is, almost 30, more than 30, is at the forefront of national conversations about racial justice, identity politics, and policing, and over the years has helped shape legal discussions. In 2017, in honor of the 20th anniversary of the founding of AAPF, which is the African American Policy Forum, Columbia Law School published an interview with Kimberly Crenshaw. In that interview, she was asked, you originally coined the term intersectionality to describe bias and violence against black women, but it's become more widely used for LGBTQ issues, among others. Is that, she was asked, a misunderstanding of intersectionality? And Crenshaw replied, Intersectionality is a lens through which you can see where power comes from and collides, where it interlocks and intersects. It's not simply that there's a race problem here and a gender problem here and a class or LGBTQ problem there. Many times that framework erases what happens to people who are subject to all those things. Some people look to intersectionality as a grand theory of everything, she said, but that's not my intention. If someone is trying to think about how to explain to the courts why they should not dismiss a case made by black women, just because the employer did hire blacks, who were men, and women, who were white, then that's what this tool was designed to do. And if it works, great. If it doesn't work, it's not like you have to use this concept, she said. 
And then she said, the other issue is that intersectionality can get used as a blanket term to mean, well, it's complicated. And sometimes it's complicated is an excuse not to do anything. There's no thing as a single issue struggle because we don't live single issue lives. And we are not going to use it's complicated as an excuse for complacency and complicity. Now, one of the things that I value so much about this congregation is that we are a community who is willing to learn together. And not just to learn as an academic exercise, but to learn and then to apply what we're learning to how we function in the world. We don't do it perfectly, hardly ever, but we do it. And this topic is a really great example of how I have experienced us being in process together over the years. So I remember a worship service that I led many years ago. It was probably a, a celebration in service of Earth Day, although I don't remember specifically. But what I do remember is that in that service, I talked about things that we could do to be more environmentally friendly. I named things like recycling, driving electric or hybrid vehicles, purchasing more efficient kitchen and laundry appliances, installing rain barrels and rain gardens in our yards, and putting solar panels on the roofs of our homes. Now, I cringe when I think of that service. Now, please do not misunderstand. Every single one of those things is a good thing. And for those among us with the resources to make those particular choices, we absolutely should choose those options over those that are more wasteful and more environmentally harmful. But I cringe because of the assumptions, the unexamined at the time assumptions underlying that list. Assumptions that I was speaking to a crowd of homeowners with adequate wealth to buy new cars and appliances and things, who had yards large enough to install rain gardens in them. I didn't even consider who was excluded by the assumptions I was making. I didn't consider the inherent classism and elitism that is now glaringly evident, but I was completely oblivious then. So thank you for being my teachers. Now we in UUCC are much more deliberate about considering these kinds of things, these intersections. Not only in the actions that we do in our outreach and justice-making efforts, but also in how we do the internal business of being a congregation. We talk about using an anti-oppressive, anti-racist lens in decision-making, which means simply, but also profoundly, that we're intentional in considering how race or gender or sexual identity is represented, misrepresented, affected by the choices we make. We're careful to think more critically about what we default to in selecting music or sources for readings in worship, in posting job announcements. Where do we put out the announcement for somebody that might work for this congregation? Where do we post notices for our coffee houses and chalice concerts? 
we think more critically about where we are investing our time and energy, both internally and in our public witness. We ask ourselves, at least a little more frequently, are we reinforcing discriminatory power structures or are we doing our part to dismantle them? In preparation for today's service, I read the full transcript of a speech delivered by Audre Lorde in 1982 at Harvard University. The speech, titled Learning from the, Learning from the 60s, was part of the celebration of the Malcolm X weekend. And it's clear in reading the text that her audience was predominantly black. As I read the speech, I kept thinking, yes, amen. And I was a little bit uncomfortably aware that I needed to be careful that not all of this message was, is relevant to me in the way that it was to her audience. Still, it was helpful to me as I strive to deepen my understanding of how intersectionality applies to me and to us. So I'm going to read an excerpt of the speech here with the caveat that we as a predominantly white congregation probably aren't Audre Lorde's target audience. But I do think all of us can learn from her words, and I commend the entire speech to you. But here's just a little bit of it. It's the part where she starts with, there is no such thing as a single-issue struggle because we do not live single-issue lives. Malcolm knew this. Martin Luther King Jr. knew this. If we are to keep the enormity of the forces aligned against us from establishing a false hierarchy of oppression, we must school ourselves to recognize that any attack against blacks, any attack against women, is an attack against all of us who recognize that our interests are not being served by the systems we support. Each one of us here is a link in the connection between anti-poor legislation gay shootings, the burning of synagogues, street harassment, attacks against women, and resurgent violence against black people. I ask myself, as well as each one of you, exactly what alteration in the particular fabric of my everyday life does this connection call for? She continues, survival is not a theory. In what way do I contribute to the subjugation of any part of those who I define as my people? Insight must illuminate the particulars of our lives. Who labors to make the bread that we waste or the energy it takes to make nuclear poisons which will not biodegrade for 1,000 years? Or who goes blind assembling the microtransistors in our inexpensive calculators? We, she said, are women trying to knit a future in a country where an equal rights amendment was defeated as subversive legislation. We are lesbians and gay men who, as the most obvious target of the new right, are threatened with castration, imprisonment, and death in the streets. And we know that our erasure only paves the way for erasure of other people of color, of the old, of the poor, of all those who do not fit that mythic dehumanizing norm. 
Can we really still afford to be fighting each other? Decisions to cut aid for the terminally ill, for the elderly, for, the, for dependent children, for food stamps, even school lunches, are being made by men with full stomachs who live in comfortable houses with two cars and umpteen tax shelters. None of them go hungry to bed at night. Recently, it was suggested that senior citizens be hired to work in atomic plants because they are close to the end of their lives anyway. Can any one of us here still afford to believe that efforts to reclaim the future can be private or individual? Can anyone here still afford to believe that the pursuit of liberation can be the sole and particular province of any one particular race or sex or age or religion or sexuality or class? Revolution is not a one-time event. It is becoming always vigilant for the smallest opportunity to make a genuine change in established, outgrown responses. For instance, it is learning to address each other's differences with respect. Later, as she was wrapping up and reinforcing her point about why her message still mattered, and I would say, remember, this was exactly 40 years ago, and spoiler alert, <laughs> it still matters, and mattered for her audience of people being trained at Harvard University in particular, she warned them that those privileges weren't going to protect them. She said, to paraphrase Malcolm, a black woman attorney driving a Mercedes through Avenue Z in Brooklyn is still called a racist, sexist slur. And I would say that's it. That's the thing that I hope we'll all remember about intersectionality that we will allow to influence our understanding of the world we live in, that no matter how so-called respectable is her profession or her car or her neighborhood, a black woman attorney driving a Mercedes through Avenue Z in Brooklyn is still called by other people a sexist, racist slur. Intersectionality is not merely shorthand for it's complicated. Intersectionality does insist that we recognize it's not simple and that justice-making and progress is not neatly linear and that identity and oppression are not cut and dry and that it's not a competition. And understanding intersectionality demands that I ask myself, what am I taking for granted? What is making this particular fill-in-the-blank issue even worse for a person of color or with a disability or who is queer? What am I comfortably oblivious about because it doesn't affect me directly? And how do I not remain willfully ignorant as I continue to grow? Understanding intersectionality means that during Gay Pride Month, we're not centering all our attention and rhetoric on the lives and the effort of white people whose images are pla plastered across glossy magazines, but that we lift up the memories of people like Marsha Johnson and Sylvia Rivera who were drag queens, who were not white. 
It means that in our effort to promote common sense gun legislation, we remember that the pain of impact is exacerbated when victims of gun violence are Asian or Latinx or are sex workers. It means that in our remembrance of the Pulse nightclub shooting six years ago today, we honor the layers of grief and loss in a community that was not only queer, but also largely Latinx and Catholic. Understanding intersectionality means that if I really am invested in environmental justice, I will pay attention to what happens to my waste after it's removed from the curb on my suburban street. Who knows where our waste goes? I didn't, well, I didn't until last week, right? From here in Howard County, it's taken to the Bresco incinerator in Baltimore City where it's burned. That incinerator is the primary source of pollution in Baltimore City. And the incinerator's immediate neighbors, who are predominantly black, die of lung cancer at 1.4 times the city's average rate. So I'm contributing to this pollution and the racial inequity at no direct cost to myself. Most of us gathered today don't personally need better public transportation or easier access than we already have to healthier foods. But when we better understand the intersections of oppression, we know that the work of the Baltimore Transit Equity Coalition and the Black Church Food Security Network are important in our movement toward collective liberation. So we can be more informed about things like transportation equity and the Bresco incinerator and food insecurity in urban communities. We can pay attention to where our political influence, because we have that in loads, could be valuable in making meaningful change. We can follow organizers like those of the Poor People's Campaign and show up at their march in Washington next Saturday. In his penultimate sermon, Dr. King said, we are tied together in the single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Intersectionality calls on us to remember that. Let us remember, let us remember that a black woman attorney driving a Mercedes down Avenue Z in Brooklyn is still called nasty names. May we, whatever our identities, have the humility and the willingness to deepen our understanding of what it means to exist in the intersection of oppressions and the intersection of privileges for many of us. And may we have the compassion and the will to learn and to do our part in advancing all toward collective liberation. Amen. Will you rise in body or in spirit? We're going to sing, We Would Be One.
Thank you. You may be seated. We are going to honor joys and sorrows now, and I would welcome one of you to volunteer to drop the pebbles in the water since the kids are gone. Is there a grown-up who's willing to do that? Thank you, Lori. Or Mark, come on up. It is our custom each week to honor the personal joys and sorrows of members of the community. And we place a single pebble that honors a single joy, a single life, a single sorrow into a communal bowl of water to symbolize the way that our lives ripple out and touch one another and are held in the embrace of the community. And mark just one more pebble in the water for all of those things that we are holding unspoken among us this morning. Thank you, Mark. After the, our time of prayer and reflection, if any of you in the sanctuary wants to come forward and place your own pebbles in the water in silence, please feel free to do that. But I invite you to join me now for just a few moments of reflection and silence. Great spirit of life and of love, may we be held in a loving embrace. May we celebrate these joys that we've heard, joys of birthdays and anniversaries and love for our vocations and avocations. And may we also feel that calling to bring our faith, our faithful convictions, our courage, our hope, our love into a world that is hungry and tired and broken and so often misguided. And may we learn where we too are misguided and need to turn. Let us share just a moment of quiet and stillness. Amen. Blessed be.
rise for the words of benediction. These words also come from Audre Lorde's 1982 speech at Harvard University. She said, we share a common interest, survival, and it cannot be pursued in isolation from others simply because their differences make us uncomfortable. Freedom cannot belong to any one group of us without the others also being free. So may it be. Amen. Someone says, how are you? What I want to say is, well, considering the world is run by corrupt leaders, our food is being poisoned, the meat industry has become a holocaust, the atmosphere is being sprayed with chemicals, pesticides, and poisons, Racism still exists on a high level and is still an issue. There are people dying in the world from starvation and police brutality while we waste enough food to feed them. Bombs, homeless, crime, prisons, junk food, death, Miseducation, pollution, poverty, nuclear plants leaking. I would say I'm pretty concerned right now. But I just smile and say, I'm fine.